I agree. I think that's a really fantastic parallel. And I do feel that we have to aim as high as we can in the you know context of conservation and rewilding. We shouldn't just be focused on a particular ecosystem or one or two species, even though those projects are laudable. We should really be trying to revitalize and restore entire ecosystems. Hello and welcome to Rethink What Matters, the podcast dedicated to aligning the economy with the ecology and everyone for improved business performance, stronger families and a greener, cooler planet. And today I'm joined by Millie Kerr, author and conservation storyteller. Millie is the author of Wilder, How Rewilding is Transforming Conservation and Changing the World. Her book has had high praise from the new scientist and Jane Goodhall herself, famous for her work with chimpanzees. Yes, and today we are discussing rewilding. Thanks, Paul. It's really great to be here today. Brilliant. Um, And I see that your book has had high praise from the new scientist and Jane Goodall herself, who uh, is well known for her work with chimpanzees. Yes, their endorsements and praise were really humbling to me, especially to have someone like Jane Goodall stand behind this book. And I think one of the things that seems to have resonated with people is the global nature of the book. So every chapter examines a rewilding project in a different part of the world. And that seems to have changed the rewilding dialogue a little bit, I think. If you could tell us a little bit about your journey. So my journey is a winding one. I started my career as a corporate attorney, and then I transitioned to journalist and conservation storyteller about a decade ago. In terms of this book, I'd been writing a lot about conservation, and I'd started to hear more about these really ambitious rewilding projects that were taking place all over the world. And even though some of them were not using the term rewilding, it was clear that they fit within the parameters. And I really wanted to write an optimistic book that shows that there are fantastic advances happening in conservation. And so that's how I landed on this topic. That's great. So perhaps we can just explore a little bit more about rewilding and what actually is the scope of rewilding? Rewilding today means a lot of different things to different people. Here in the UK, it tends to be focused on restoring former agricultural land by taking different measures that will make the land healthier and therefore attract wildlife. But in fact, when rewilding became a a topic in the 1990s, the term was coined in the US and it actually referred to what are called the three C's, which is carnivores, cores, and connectivity. And so the original aim, which still guides a lot of projects today, is to create or maintain core areas like large national parks, then have corridors connecting a specific core area to another or to numerous other cores, and then as needed to reintroduce carnivores because carnivores obviously sit at the top of the food chain So they regulate ecosystems and there's this trickle down effect that can entirely revolutionize an ecosystem. And 
The example that a lot of people point to uh, was the reintroduction of gray wolves to Yellowstone National Park in the U.S. in 1995, because after the wolves were brought back, there were changes in terms of predator-prey dynamics. The wolves were killing more prey and the prey animals weren't overgrazing and so on and so forth. But today, rewilding encompasses projects of many different scales, not all of which involve the reintroduction of carnivores. However, many do focus on bringing back what are called keystone species, which is basically any species that exerts more influence over an ecosystem than others. It includes animals like elephants and sea otters and beavers, for instance. So this is, um, this is really spot on, I think, for Wardroo. You know, Wardroo is all about net gain. And I think rewilding is very similar to that. You know, net gain seems that uh, net zero is not really enough to move us forward. And I think rewilding is sort of the positive side of conservation. Conservation is about, you know, stopping decline and rewilding is about building and regenerating for the future and, and restoring and repairing and, and building anew. I agree. I think that's a really fantastic parallel. And I do feel that we have to aim as high as we can in the you know, context of conservation and rewilding, we shouldn't just be focused on a particular ecosystem or one or two species, even though those projects are laudable, we should really be trying to revitalize and restore entire ecosystems and everything that comes with it and everything that regulates it. Right, brilliant. So rewilding is it's about species, it's about habitats, um, and it's about ecosystems. That's right. And, you know, there are some projects that are more focused on species reintroductions, for instance, because once that happens, like with the gray wolves, there will be this trickle down effect. Right. And, you know, wolves were introduced to yellow, reintroduced rather to Yellowstone National Park, which is already a very large wilderness area that's protected. Whereas there are other projects where creating or expanding a protected area is half the battle. And of course, these projects are at all different stages as well. That right. was something when writing the book, I had to think about, you know, at what point is this a rewilding project? And at what point is it successful? Is rewilding actually happening? Those are some of the really interesting questions, I think. I'd like to come on to that. How, you know, what's the measure of success with rewilding? So it does depend on what the goals and kind of the bounds of the project are, but there's one or two in my book that really do hinge on the population growth of a particular species. So in one chapter, I wrote about the reintroduction of scimitar horned oryx to Chad, and the goal is to see 500, you know, breeding and viable adults or in the sort of in the nearer term, just to have 500 adults living in the wild. But right. if you have something that involves more what's called trophic complexity, which is kind of like that interaction between predators, prey, vegetation, et cetera, you might then have different metrics. Or if your original goal is to protect X number of hectares of habitat, you might find that you have success when that's in place. And it is worth pointing out that in the UK, rewilding tends to fall under what's called passive rewilding. And so in a lot of these projects, the goal is to take land, oftentimes former agricultural land, and let it run wild again. And so even though people might kick off the process by 
bringing down fences or removing invasive species or not allowing livestock to go in a particular area. The hope is that species that might have either gone missing locally or the numbers have plummeted, that they'll just kind of come back of their own accord. Right. But I think right. in general, one of the things that rewilding will still have to work out over time is how these measures of success work. And at what point is a project seen as being self-sustaining? Right. Because even though rewilding does require human intervention at the outset, even if it is in a more passive sense, there is this notion that at some point people need to step away yeah. and that the project, yeah, the project needs to be successful and self-sustaining. Yeah. And of course, nature, let, take yeah, over. let nature take its course. Exactly. It sounds that um, there may be a, cl a close correlation with, uh, you know, regenerative agriculture here. So I suppose regenerative agriculture is more on the farming side of things. And this is more on the, I know the open spaces. And I think there is good. a link. And there's even some rewilding projects that, focus on sort of more sustainable or regenerative agriculture. And I wrote about one here in the UK where there's a farm owned by a family and they're simply trying to take small measures like increasing the number of hedgerows, which can be important for birds to nest in or allowing certain fields to go fallow or creating wildflower meadows. So I think the idea as you know, is that all of these things need to work in concert and there's many different goals, but they all influence one another. And, you know, the same is true of climate change, for instance, like rewilding is seen as a tool for mitigating climate change. But equally, when you set out on a project, you have to consider that climate change might have already impacted a certain ecosystem in a way that will then alter the project itself. I did want to ask you that, actually, to what extent is climate change driving these rewilding projects? Uh, maybe it's not that obvious always, but what does tend to drive these rewilding projects? Is it human activity and climate change? Those are certainly factors and habitat loss, which is a big one, which, of course, is often due to population growth and things like agriculture. But some of the projects I featured have a much more specific cause, which in several cases with civil war or civil conflict. Right. In other cases, it was just the sort of growth of a type of agriculture, such as cattle ranching, that just completely altered the ecosystem. So right. I think, you know, there's a wide variety of causes and equally there's a wide variety of solutions. And that is why rewilding does have so many different shapes and sizes and applications so is it necessary sometimes then to get the like the lo local communities involved too absolutely and i believe in general that conservation must involve local communities especially because local communities are often the best stewards anyway because they have everything to lose or to gain from the state of nature in their areas and right. at the same time it only seems fair that local communities will ultimately have the ability to steward their land. But there are, of course, challenges as well. So for instance, it's very easy for us to sit here and think about the importance of having elephants or maintaining lion populations. But if you're actually living in the midst of these species, 
you have to contend with the reality that they might trample your crops or big cats might kill your livestock. And so there are a lot of interesting mechanisms for addressing that. But I, to your original question, I think local communities absolutely must play an essential part. And that seems to be something that's recognized more widely these days in conservation. You know, I don't want to have to ask really, but it's a bit of a reality, isn't it? Everything still, you know, is driven by economics and money. So, you know, to what extent are these rewilding projects, you know, having to deliver some kind of an economic output? You know, I think that there always needs to be an incentive, whether it's economic or otherwise. But to the point I made earlier, if you have people, let's say, living alongside dangerous animals or destructive animals, there needs to be, first of all, a way to compensate them for loss. And that's often set up through these funds where, for instance, if a lion kills your sheep, you can then get funding to cover the, you know, the loss to your farming or your agriculture. Right. But equally, communities and other you know, individuals and groups in these areas do need to have other economic incentives. And oftentimes, ecotourism is the answer. Right. But as we saw with the pandemic, you become quite vulnerable when the sole source of your income is related to ecotourism. However, you will often find that people who care about the environment are also likely to travel to wilderness areas. And so there's also that educational opportunity that when you have people there, you mm. can tell them about the conservation and rewilding work and they may then even donate money but often there are, you know, percentages of your stay at a safari lodge, for instance, might go towards rewilding or conservation in the area. So I think all of those incentives are really important. Okay. All right. And I'm just wondering, do all re are all rewilding projects successful or do some of them just not manage to just not manage to achieve their goals? Unfortunately, not all rewilding projects are successful. I think especially really ambitious ones or ones that are taking place in vulnerable areas where there's civil strife or conflict. Okay. And the reality too, is that a lot of these projects are young enough that we don't really know yet if they've been successful or they may be successful as of now, right. but what's happened 50 years from now or 300 years from now. I think right. it's important to measure the gains in the short term, but especially in the longer term. And that way, rewilders can also learn from their mistakes and develop guiding principles and metrics for success. You know, none right. of that is my expertise, but that's kind of the gold standard in conservation and probably any type of science where you do need to have ways to measure success and then adapt and find ways to move forward more efficiently. Right. With the way the world is changing and with climate warming, you know, and uh, increased awareness of the issues that we're all facing, are you aware that, you know, are, are rewilding projects becoming more common? I mean, are more and more rewilding projects being undertaken now? Is there more investment going into rewilding? I think there's absolutely an increasing amount of interest going into rewilding and investment. You see these large organizations now like Rewilding Europe. You have countries like Scotland. Scotland wants to become the first rewilding nation. And I think in general, the fact that people are starting to know the term 
it's a great connection for them into conservation. And one of the strengths the term has is that it does mean many things to different people. So it's quite flexible in a way. Now, yeah. scientists might say, well, if it means so many things, does it really mean anything? But I tend to be of the opinion that having variability and having a diverse set of approaches is a positive thing because my core interest is trying to find ways to get the general public interested in conservation. And so the more people read about rewilding or learn about it, the more that term becomes fixed. And it's something that they then might, again, like either they might want to participate in or they might want to donate money towards it or you know, any number of things, but you start to have that public engagement as well. You know, it fits so well with uh, net zero and uh, it's almost a swear word, isn't it? Offsetting, if you like. But, um, do you, you know, to what extent are, is rewilding related to offsetting? Do you know, are there rewilding projects specifically to sell, if you like, for offsetting purposes? That is a really great question. And I don't know the answer. I suspect that there are offsets that are very much related to rewilding and that incorporate rewilding projects, but I'm not yet aware of, for instance, rewilding offsets, but it wouldn't surprise me if that's in the making as we speak. I think we've got a market there. We need to go set up a business very fast. Great. So do you know if it, is it ever, is it ever difficult to choose the re, a rewilding project? I guess there's always somebody whose passion is driving it. I think oftentimes you do see, especially these really ambitious projects are driven by an individual or an organization that's already passionate about rewilding or is passionate about a specific project. So yeah. for instance, one of the most ambitious projects I wrote about in Wilder, which is the first chapter, is the restoration of a park in Mozambique called Gorongosa. Mm -hmm. And even though the work is being undertaken by scientists from around the world and local Mozambicans and the Mozambican Parks Authority, pretty much the entire project is being funded by a single individual who is an American right. entrepreneur turned philanthropist. And he didn't set out to fund a rewilding project per se. And I think when he got started, I'm not sure the term was mainstream at that point. In fact, I, I think it probably wasn't. But he wanted to do something that was really ambitious. And it's just critical in a country like Mozambique that doesn't have a lot of sort of national park management of the kind that you might see in other African countries or elsewhere to get a project like that off the ground. Right. But elsewhere, you know, the needs might be driven by local people or national parks trying to decide where the next rewilding project should be. Sometimes it is species driven. And I think we have to acknowledge that sometimes that comes down to what are known as charismatic megafauna. So you have right. animals like elephants and lions that get the public excited. Right. And if they can anchor a project, they're also keystone species. Yeah. That's fantastic. And you might have someone who wants to fund a project focused on elephants because he or she is passionate about elephants. I think it happens in all sorts of ways. And it really, really depends on where the financing is coming from. Keystone species is a new term to me. Um, it, you know, I'm just wondering, is it a new term? I don't know how long it's been around, but it's not as new as rewilding, for instance. Right. And 
I think what's new in the rewilding landscape is the acknowledgement that rewilding projects are not just about reintroducing carnivores. They're also about reintroducing other types of keystone species, not all of which sit high on the food chain, but you've got animals like beavers and sea otters that are what are called ecosystem engineers, and they can have incredible changes, or they can, sorry, they can prompt incredible changes to an ecosystem, and they're really important too. So there are rewilding projects that sort of hinge on non-carnivore keystone species. I'd love to know more about the projects in your book, actually. Um, could you maybe tell us about, you know, two or three of them that, you know, you'd really like to relate to everybody? Sure. So I intentionally wrote several chapters that are similar and involve restoring landscapes and wildlife in areas that were impacted by recent events like civil wars. So one chapter, which I have mentioned, involves the restoration of Gorongosa National Park in Mozambique, which unfortunately was at the center of the Mozambican Civil War. And then in Rwanda, the genocide and the after effects of the genocide, namely a lot of Rwandans returning to their home country after the war with their livestock, that impacted the country's largest national park, which is called Akagera. But then I also chose projects that were really, really different. So for instance, one examines removing invasive species in New Zealand. So mm -hmm. you may know that a lot of island ecosystems are really vulnerable to the introduction of invasive plants and animals because islands often have a lot of what are called endemic species. So things that are only found there and not found anywhere else. And New Zealand is kind of the height of this because it's been on its own as a landmass for a very, very long time. And when it split off of the supercontinent called Gondwana, mammals had not even evolved yet. So the only native mammal in New Zealand is a bat or maybe several bat species that actually flew over from Australia, you know, a long, long time ago. And so today it's imperative that animals like stoats and cats and rats are removed because they are just wreaking havoc on the native wildlife, especially bird and reptiles that live on the ground and never had these land-based predators to contend with. Right. That's interesting. So that's sort of almost sort of turning re rewilding around, isn't it? It's sort of removing something which is the pest as opposed to reintroducing something which everyone sort of desires. Exactly. And it is interesting because I know in the literature, there was some debate about, you know, is island rewilding really rewilding? But I think it absolutely is because the goals are the same. It's just that on islands, as you point out, it's often about removing something. Yeah. And so I wanted to make sure I covered that subject. I wanted to make sure I had an urban project. So I ended up writing about my hometown of San Antonio, Texas which has the San Antonio River flowing through it. And like many waterways, the river was manipulated over time to try to reduce flooding in San Antonio. But unfortunately, that had really negative consequences for wildlife because the river became this kind of tame thing that wasn't a living, breathing, wild system anymore. And so... Right a lot of interesting changes have needed to happen 
And ultimately, it benefits people more anyway. So a lot of the flood mitigation was kind of short-sighted and didn't really take fact other factors into account. Okay. Well, that's a, that's a completely different type of project, I think, for rewilding, isn't it? You know, always it's thinking it's going to be about, you know, reintroducing species and animals, but it can also then be about, um, you know, the way that rivers are running and the way that they're managed. Exactly. You definitely see rewilding applied to so many different systems and projects, and there have been some reintroductions there, but a lot of the other urban rewilding projects have to do with greenways and taking places like old railroad tracks and trying to make them, you know, wild, vibrant ecosystems again. Because obviously in urban contexts, you're less likely to see these, you know, what were called the large core areas like right. big parks. Although interestingly in London, you do have a number of large parks that are close enough together that you imagine animals, you know, moving between them. We certainly see that with foxes here. Yeah, uh, you know, I know that uh, if you go to some of the London parks, you'll find, um, I think it's uh, budgerigars there, you know, which budgerigars, you don't normally get budgerigars in England, but there's a whole load of budgerigars there hanging out. Um, and, and the other one is uh, squirrels. We've got, you know, we're overrun with grey squirrels here. And I think it's, you know, our red squirrels, been beaten yep. off, you know, it's disappeared. Yeah, it's it's a shame, really, that these invasive species have ended up here. You know, I always say it's not their fault, but at the same time, in a lot of cases, they are displacing native species, and that's definitely been true of the, you know, North American gray squirrel versus the native red squirrel here, and yeah. then the birds you often see in Hyde Park, which I think are called. They have different names, but I think they're called rose-neck uh, parakeets. Successful. You see them in a lot of cities in Europe as well. And they're obviously successful for a reason, which is they're probably taking over nest holes, for instance, from yep. other species. They're consuming, you know, seeds or vegetation that other species depend on. And so there are certainly efforts like in New Zealand to get rid of these invasive species, but they can also be very controversial. I was going to ask, there must be quite a discussion within the rewilding community then. You know, this has been going on probably forever. You know, species traveling from one place to the next and things changing. Is that, does that ever present challenges to, to rewilders, if you like, um, to justify what they want to do? It definitely does. And where it really comes into play is around what are called baselines, which is, you know, what it sounds like. So you're trying to establish what are we trying to return this state to? Are we trying to return it to pre-industrial revolution? Are we trying to return it to the Pleistocene era? You know, you have people who want to resurrect the woolly mammoth and are working every day to try to make that happen. And a lot of rewilders, I would say, are focused on sort of pre-industrial revolution or times before what's now called the sixth great extinction and the Holocene. So this is like the one time we see all of these extinctions happening because of human behavior. Right. But I personally think more thought should be given to baselines. And I'm not convinced that any one baseline is right or wrong. But of course, this is where you do have to start to consider things like climate change and the natural cycles of things. So if we bring some of these species back that went missing 
thousands of years ago, will they even be able to survive in today's environments? And everything is so interconnected, isn't it? You know, you, you push on one bit and something else pops out somewhere else you, you know, probably hadn't anticipated. So, yeah. So are there constant, are there rewilding projects, you know, in every country or do you find that the rewilding projects, you know, occur mostly in hot countries or in, in Africa? Or That's a really great question. I think there's certainly a lot of rewilding that isn't called rewilding and is a form of conservation that would be classified as rewilding. I mean, even a number of the projects I wrote about, the individuals I interviewed weren't familiar with the term or the concept. But I think what you're seeing a lot today is there's a lot of interest coming out of the UK and Europe where there are these large NGOs that are passionate about rewilding locally and regionally. Whereas historically, a lot of conservation was rooted originally in kind of colonial era hunting in places like Africa or India. And then those hunters started to see that their quarry was diminishing. And so that led to them becoming interested in conservation initially in a self-centered, self-focused way, and then later in a more benevolent, charitable way. But conservation, I think, is happening all over the place. It's really just about what kind of resources are available. And as you can imagine, there are parts of the world that get overlooked and where there might not be as much knowledge in country or resources in country. And then you're dependent on some foreign body. And, you know, that can be a good thing. But there's really interesting training programs and educational programs. So for instance, back to Mozambique, one of the things that Gorongosa National Park has done is they've created a wildlife conservation master's program that takes place inside the park and it only admits Mozambican students. And right. so it's like, you know, these people are gonna come in and they're gonna learn all about the need for conservation in their home country. They're gonna be trained there. And the idea is that hopefully they will stick around and they will be the next generation of conservation leaders in Mozambique. So when when did you know rewilding sort of become a thing, if you like? When did conservation become rewilding or is it rewilding always been there? The term rewilding dates back to the 1990s when there seemed to be a recognition that traditional conservation wasn't going far enough and that there needed to be these really large and ambitious projects. And so they started, you know, springing up in the 90s and in the years that followed. But there was a book that came out in the UK in 2013 called Feral by George Monbiot, who writes for The Guardian. Right. And that was a book that introduced a lot of readers in this country to the concept. I would say in my experience, I live in the UK, but I'm from the US. And fewer people in the U.S. seem to know the term. But then when you talk about something like Yellowstone National Park and the Gray Wolves, they're familiar with the project. So it's right. a matter of helping people see that rewilding is a form of conservation, but it's also, at least in my opinion, more ambitious than conservation. Okay. And is rewilding a subject in its own right in universities and colleges for people to study? And It's starting to become that, I think. So I've not yeah. heard yet of a particular degree in rewilding, for example, but right. I can imagine that a lot of these undergraduate and graduate 
degrees in conservation biology or ecology might now have a course or a set of courses on rewilding. And I just think the movement will continue to grow and grow and there will continue to be probably more professionals who want to get into the conservation space to become rewilders. I think we're probably yeah. seeing that as we speak in a kind of informal way. Yeah, I can imagine this is the distinction between rewilding being about growth, if you like, versus, you know, as we were saying, conservation about making sure there's not further decline is, I think, an important distinction today more than ever, you know, because more and more people are recognizing that we need to be regenerative, um, you know, and, and less it's less about being sustainable. It's more about being regenerative. So hopefully rewilding does become a thing all of itself. And if it does, then, um, yeah, that def definitely is going to be helping us be to become a net gain. As, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. And I think it is exciting to see this movement really taking off where suddenly you know, you talk to one of your friends and they're like, yeah, I know what rewilding is. I just read such and such book about it. Yeah. And when I was writing Wilder, I kept interviewing people who would say to me, just so you know, I was just interviewed by two other authors who were working on a book. And it just sort of blew up in recent years, I think, because this organization called Rewilding Britain has taken off in the wake of Rewilding Europe. And people now know that beavers have started to come back here in the UK in the UK. And so the movement just continues to snowball, which is very, very exciting because often with topics like science, it's hard to get the general public excited yeah. about whatever you're working on. And I think we're realizing that everything's just a little bit too uh, manicured and organized and pristine. So I believe also the Chelsea Flower Show now that um, Wild Meadows or wild plants, wild flowers are now a thing. Whereas before, I think it was something that was a bit, uh, you know, you look down upon. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, people, typically people who do a lot of gardening, they want the space to be very manicured, to look a specific way. They're often using foreign plants and flowers that are really beautiful. But now that there's this greater realization, especially that pollinators are in such decline and that our food sources and supplies depend on the success of pollinators, more and more people are willing to have wild spaces. And interestingly, right in Hyde Park in Kensington Gardens, just next door to Kensington Palace, in the last two years, a manicured grassy area has been converted into a wildflower meadow. Right. I personally find it really beautiful. And I think a lot of people are are recognizing that we live in a world that's becoming less wild and that we as people are becoming less wild, we're losing our wildness. So there's also this movement towards personal rewilding, which is certainly something I've experienced having transitioned from law to writing about the environment and conservation. And I think more people are hungry for these changes. So are there any uh, sort of closing thoughts, Millie, do you think that people should perhaps take away from this, uh, from this podcast? I would say the final point back to sort of self-education and education is just I would encourage people to learn about conservation and rewilding, to learn about the breadth of rewilding. And of course, I'm biased, but I think that Wilder provides a great introduction to the many possibilities of rewilding. But it's one of these situations where we have to watch this space. We have to see how these projects evolve. What do they look like in a few years time? What do they look like in a decade? 
And so there's just so much to learn, so much to watch. And I personally can't wait to see how these projects evolve. Of course, I hope they're all successful, but realistically, they may not all be. And we have to learn from our failures, too. Lily, thanks very much for your time on this podcast. It's been really great to have you on this podcast and the time that you shared with us and the opportunity to learn about, you know, your projects and your book. Thank you, Paul, for having me. I think we've had a really dynamic conversation and I appreciate you having me on as a guest.